Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. I answered the call of the sea. Ooh. Okay. Enlighten mm-hmm. me. Well, actually, it was from FedEx. Uh huh. But they called me. As, as you know, as many people know, I currently reside in New York State. But I got a call saying that I had a package uh, that was undeliverable in, back in St. Petersburg. So, very confused, I gave them my home address and told my mom to open the package and tell me what was inside because it was addressed to me, as mm-hmm. far as I could tell. And inside was a very expensive, uh, like, fish finder Garmin from Bass Pro Shop. <laughs> what? Did you... <laughs> The universe telling me <laughs> I need to go out on the seas and, and catch that. Catch that fish. Catch that bass. Catch that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what? I have so many questions. I'm a, I'm I mean, a bit of a bass man, you know. Yeah. I, I'm a bass pro. I, did you study in Massachusetts? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm a real god. bass hole. Mmm. Nice mm. one. But, yes. Yeah. Did you order something from Bass Pro Shop when you went then? I was like, did because. I think followers of the Uncanny County Museum will remember that I <laughs> I talked about being in a Bass Pro Shop a few weeks ago, and I was right. trying to think, did I accidentally order something? Mm. There was no receipt with this thing, but the name on it was Alex Peters, um, oh, and FedEx no. had looked me up. So, But I saw on the shipping label there was a phone number under the address, so I called, and I was like, um, hi, uh, we have the same name and are both from St. Petersburg. And I think I got your, <laughs> your fish finder. <laughs> and, uh, he did end up getting back to me, but he called me and he's like, is this Alexander Peters? And I'm like, <laughs> yes. Is this Alex Peters? <laughs> you said it just said, is this also Alexander Peters? <laughs> oh, that is, this is the Krusty Krab. Oh my God. You, you <laughs> ran into like. Wow, it's your it's your other other self, I guess. Other named being. I guess he. Huh. My mom. Uh, he was very grateful that uh, his his thing had showed up, but it just means that if FedEx can't deliver your box, it means they just Google you because they clearly didn't. They. I figured out who it belonged to. They <laughs> just should... googled. They just googled my name in Saint Petersburg. Sounds like you should work for FedEx. Um, uh, but I can't yeah. work. For, I, no, I can't I, work for those people. Of course, no. But um, that is—it's very human, but also kind of like mm-hmm. not terrifying, but concerning a little bit. It does really highlight how generic my name is. I guess that's fair, but at least you have Zan. Mm. You know, mm. don't know too many yeah. Zans in this way, so right, it works yeah. out. Alex exactly. Peters, I, I man, mm. I don't know if I could call you Alex. Mm. Doesn't work. Yeah, I. 
I I never give Alex as a name. If I have to give my name at like a restaurant or a coffee shop, I give them Alexander because that one I don't <laughs> feel like I don't feel like uh, explaining Zan. I've always realized this, and now now it's making sense because I've never questioned it, but I've always been thinking <laughs> like, why is he so formal? Like why? Because your mom calls you Alexander, which is wholesome, yeah. just as mine calls me Joseph. But when, but when you go out of your way to to then refer to yourself that as, as Alexander, I get a little confused mm. in a sense. But you're it makes like, it makes who, sense. You're like, who, wait, who am I with? Right? Do I not know who's the this, name who, of my friend? Yeah, who's this? He goes by many <laughs> who names. Is, who is who is this man I'm getting barbecue with? Yeah. Alexander. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. Um I mean I I think I endearingly refer to you as Joseph sometimes. Sometimes, um, yeah. Yeah. It works. Uh yeah, I it, some I don't think I've ever thrown your middle name in there. Not yet. No. No. You can to, feel free I have, to. I have to wait I have to wait for the right moment. Mm. Um <laughs> anyways, speaking of the right moment, uh 20,000 years ago. Wow. Let's talk about it. Yeah, how to be back. <laughs> Not a single phone yeah. in sight. <laughs> Everybody just vibing. Just vibing. Surviving uh, in yes. the wilds. Uh-huh. Well, survival is the name of the game. Um, mm. You're probably going to want to bundle up, everybody, because here at the Uncanny County Museum, today's exhibit begins at the Mammoth Step in northern, northern North America, uh, 20,000 years ago. Wow. Now, this is a desolate, windswept place. Uh, it is, uh, as the book Otherlands describes, ankle-bitingly cold, which is such a vivid way to put it. It is cold. Mm-hmm. Extremely cold, very difficult to live here. But this place where we are, um, the land bridge that has connected uh this portion of alaska to uh well what is now alaska to what is now uh russia uh is known as beringia today it is the bering strait uh it is where they film deadliest catch uh so there is uh water here now but here, 20,000 years ago, it is dry land. The ocean is 120 meters lower. Uh, hmm. A lot of the world's water is frozen in glaciers at the North and South Poles, and this means there is less water to fill the oceans. Florida is three times the size that it uh, is t- in present day. It is just a vastly different landscape um and here at the far north of the world uh you uh are in the land of mammoths it is incredibly cold and an incredibly hard way of life but there are animals here that have adapted to it wow yeah that's a very very vivid picture you're describing for us here uh and i imagine this is where you know you get your your mammoth your saber-toothed tiger or cat wow you know i plan to not say that and look at me i said it uh your human baby your sloth right this is where the cast of characters mm, really yes. come out <laughs> yes are you not I mean, I'm so, sorry are you not describing <laughs> the the plot of ice age did i misread what we're doing today i you know Ice Age, I feel like, in the same way that 
early Pixar was nervous to animate people, so they made their first movies about bugs and toys. <laughs> I feel like Blue Sky didn't want to animate backgrounds, so they're like, when is it? The Ice Age. The background. It's white. White, <laughs> white with a hint of blue. <laughs> we ain't got Disney money. No, but they made it work. Uh, but no, yes, this this is very, very interesting, and I'm, I'm very excited to, to hear to hear about all this research uh-huh. that you've been conducting for us about this yes. time period. Yes, because uh, today, why why have I brought you to this godforsaken uh, time period and place? <laughs> and that is because I want to talk about something that I have recently become very interested in. I guess it's been a question I've had for a long time, and I finally sought out a book that covers this. Um, and Today, we're going to be talking about what uh, the Native American perspective on fossils was and is currently. Mm. Um, This is, you know, something that I think we've talked about before in um, maybe different contexts. Like, we've talked about the Greeks and Romans finding mammoth skulls and that sort of bringing about the uh, potentially bringing about the origins of uh, the legend of the Cyclops, you know, these these Mediterranean Islanders who've never seen an elephant before. They find these skulls with a big hole in the front of them. Voila, you've got a Cyclops. Makes Um, sense. So in such a vast continent where today, there, there is so much paleontology uh, happening in the Americas, uh, particularly the American West. I, I sort of went out looking for what, what exactly did the first people uh, in the Americas think of these things that they were finding? Because um, they, they had to have come across them. And we know that they came across them. Um, but to what extent did they understand them uh, to be the remnants of extinct organisms? Uh, to what extent did they did they have any concept of extinction? Because that itself is something of a uh, newer concept when it comes to mainstream science. I mean, it's really something that was only understood in the last couple hundred years. Um. So huh. this is a this is a delicate subject for many reasons, but I think it would uh, it, it it falls into the purview of things that we enjoy here at the Uncanny County Museum, and uh, I thought we could just dive into it, sort of starting with what exactly was North America like when humans arrived here, uh, you know, sometime between twenty to thirty thousand years ago, the um, most of the, the confirmed dates, the earliest evidence that we have, uh, physical evidence, it goes back 22 and a half, uh, sorry, the most, most of the earliest, uh, physical evidence that we have, uh, for humans goes, uh, 22,500 years ago. Mm. Uh, DNA evidence suggests it probably goes back a little further than that. We could probably say humans were arriving maybe 30,000 years ago, but we're definitely here and definitely had been here a while uh, 20,000 years ago. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So so hum- 
I mean, humans, you know, we walked out of Africa pretty quickly and started going all around the world uh, very quickly. It's only places like Madagascar, weirdly, that humans didn't arrive until fairly recently. Uh, It's yeah, I I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, does it? Like, I don't know. The, Does anything the, the, right? right? The, <laughs> why leave? I mean, why walk around we, the world? We, I mean, we do have we do have a weird track record of the order in which we invent things as a species. That is true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I mean, yeah. I guess it's like you have to wonder. You know, wow, they all just walked out of Africa and went to all these places. Like, did the marathon get invented before we think it got invented? You know, was there more of like was there athletic walking happening? I mean, every, mm. you know, it's just like. We don't think I about mean, that. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure Phidippides <laughs> wasn't doing it for uh wasn't running the marathon uh for athletic What are you talking reasons. about? What do you mean? He had a Nike, <laughs> a Nike uh, uh funding and I was going to say scholarship, but that doesn't make any sense. Uh, a sponsorship. Uh, like, he had a Nike Right, right. And then, oh, you know, God. he run he runs the marathon and then yeah, Steve Prefontaine Steve Prefontaine is there right. and is like, that gives me an idea. Yeah, that's what happened. And now we have, uh, uh, yeah. It's I, your cousin, Philippides Fontaine. <laughs> hey, you've heard of running. Well, well listen to this. this. Oh, man. I was also going to say, I wonder if Forrest Gump was there at the beginning of time walking all across the world. Is but, that, is, is Forrest Gump like just sort some sort of like a cursed immortal, you know, yes. forced to bumble his way through history? Similar to Meatloaf. He just exists all throughout <laughs> history. <laughs> he's, he's cursed to walk the mortal plane forever. Um, yes. But no, it is, it but is. If you, if you were a, a some sort of um, cursed immortal walking yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you walked into North America. Now, this is also a somewhat controversial topic because there are I I should say um, there's a lot that um, has been done in archaeology and anthropology that has belittled uh, the oral traditions and yeah. uh, and cultural histories of many peoples of the world. But, you know, since we're talking primarily about North America today, we, we can definitely say uh, Native Americans, Canadians, First Nation, uh, and so on. Um, so uh, th- this can be a bit of a difficult topic because it can sound somewhat paternalistic, I think, um, to yeah. tell people when they arrived in a continent um, and it's it's a difficult thing to kind of broach because uh, obviously, like we've we've talked about how there's room in the world for sort of a mythic past, a story of a people and then a, a more um, definitive literalist history. Like those two things can kind of coexist because they sort of serve different purposes. Um, but there is uh, a hesitancy among certain scholars but really i think a lot of well-intentioned uh people that does not want to entertain the idea that does not want to talk about well when did humans get here because it was at some point uh, right humans had to arrive on this continent 
Um, and the the evidence, you know, suggests tens of thousands of years. And, you know, even from when I was a kid, I think that that number has gone up significantly. Yeah, because uh, I think I think it was I, I think it capped out at like 15 when I was a kid. I mean, granted, I was a kid I, and it wasn't uh, the the historical era that I was particularly interested in. But I think that was the going thing. It was earlier. Yeah, it was. It yeah. wasn't as well, there's been a lot more movement to push those dates oh, back. Yeah. And I think it keeps getting pushed back. Like, it does. It does. Um, and, and, and especially with DNA. Um, right. And there's been a lot of pushback against the Beringia hypothesis. Um, uh and this is in response to a very old uh, idea of the Clovis first hypothesis. And people, sort for a while, the Clovis was the earliest culture that uh, we, Western science uh, archaeologists, anthropologists, the earliest identified culture in North America. And the Clovis certainly existed. They were Paleo-Indians living on the continent, um, you know, making their distinct tools. Um, We don't have any other physical evidence of them, unfortunately. Uh, But they definitely existed, but we now have pretty strong evidence that they were not the first peoples in the Americas. Hmm. Um, And... DNA still suggests that it is populations out of North Asia moving in, but there could also be some other admixture. As we have also discussed here at the museum, uh, the Polynesians, uh, the Lapita, were very active in the Pacific, and it's very possible that uh, uh, other groups of humans sailed here. Um, But... The reason I wanted to start us here was to dispel one thing that I think I've heard on occasion uh, pushing back against the Beringia hypothesis. And that is to say that, oh, if the Earth was, you know, impassable glaciers at the North and South Poles, how did humans transverse those to get to North America? Um, Hmm. and it's actually kind of an interesting thing that I, uh, only encountered the answer to, uh, in the book other lands by Thomas holiday, which I, uh, have been reading and has contributed to some of the research of this. Um, and it's because Beringia was not actually ice locked the way that we sort of envision it. Um, Hmm. it was actually more, uh, it was more like modern day Mongolia, a very arid, cold in the um, cold, very cold in the winter, but moderate in the summers and Whoa. actually fairly habitable with wildflowers and grasses. Uh, it was a fairly warm climate that was not ice locked because it was incredibly dry there. That makes sense. So it would have been like a place that you could literally like settle down. Yeah. Well, I mean, Um, we don't have we don't have settle. I should clarify. We don't have that mm. type of movement happening just at the moment. But I I guess I'm referring Mm. to it as like a passable region where it's not like this, this um, Mm -hmm. frigid, you know, not like a marathon to keep using it. But like the idea that it has to be this like really 
sort of yeah, viable based. It's stuff. not. A, it's it's not what we picture Antarctica. To yeah, because like I think I think a lot of the picture that's sold of you know the 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 land bridge and whatnot and 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 how humans traveled across continents is more of this like really frigid climate. But it's interesting mm-hmm. to hear that no, actually, it's a little bit of the opposite of that, and it would be more mm-hmm. um, easily accessible. Let's say, yeah, and you could take well, your time. Y- Exactly, exactly. And in fact, it's how a lot of animals uh, from a lot of old world animals end up in North America. Um, what we need to picture is that the top of the the, the northern uh, most parts of the world were kind of this ecosystem, this revolving ecosystem that we kind of don't have anymore because of the, the loss of the ice sheets and sort of the more um, stable our climate uh, has become. The Ice Age caused very inconsistent, uh, volatile weather. Um, And you would have these patches of uh, dustier, sort of dust bowl type areas, Hmm. Um, especially in places like Beringia, where you have the ocean to kind of keep it warmer, uh, you know, seawater, uh, much more difficult to freeze. It's drier, so that means that um, water isn't getting into the soil and creating permafrost, so you get different plants. They're much poorer in nutrition. However, if you're an animal that can uh, survive on poor nutritional plants like horses, uh, mammoths, uh, muskox, you can thrive here where it's uh, far too little... Um, uh, good quality plant matter for things like bison to survive. Um, gotcha. But what would happen is, let's say you did set up camp in this location. You know, you see the uh, the, the camels off in the distance because uh, the camels also wandered in and out of North America. Uh, you see the mammoths. You see the short legged horses. Uh, this area in a couple years could then be covered in ice and then a separate section will be this more um, tolerable uh, dust bowl environment. Uh, This, it, it sort of relied on these animals being able to move around this environment that doesn't really exist anymore. And uh, once it started to disappear, these animals became more and more restricted. What we think of as the tundra, the, the animals that still uh, live in the remnants of this ecosystem, they're kind of more like stranded populations that basically used to roam the top of the world. Um, so you could be a, a, you know, a mammoth herd living in parts of what's now Siberia, wander into Alaska, um, you know, with uh, this shifting uh, environment. Really, the only things we have left of it today are muskox and grizzly bears. Huh. I, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's a very different sort of thing than we'd expect uh, to sort of see. Right. Um, but as things get wetter, uh, and peat develops, uh, and permafrost, uh, a lot of these animals will die out. Uh, mm-hmm. The last mammoths to die out on a small island in very North America, um, they've done genetic tests on them. They were so inbred 
that they oh. had 133 non-functioning genes. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah. that's a so problem. These animals were meant to be roaming very big uh, geographies, uh, and it just sort of once they could no longer do that, once was there was over. no longer this this ro- this sort of rotating door of these uh, mammoth steps, uh, there, there was uh, the, the the mammoth step elevator uh, <laughs> nice. escalator. The mammoth step escalator stopped rotating. Excellent. Um, but they were no longer able to uh, sort of um, uh, continue. So right. this opens up a time frame. Uh, the maximum, the glacier maximum was uh, 25,000 years ago. So, you know, in the thousands of years leading up to that, you would have uh, still these lower sea levels um, and this fairly temperate climate uh, hmm. at the at the uh, the northern extremities of north america so it's not outside of possibility uh to to have large numbers of humans horses camels uh mammoths uh and the ancestors of grizzly bears uh passing through here um so uh i'm going to take us out of the cold because i can see you're you're shivering and miserable i wasn't really dressed for this but yeah so now we're going to go uh somewhere very different we're going to jump forward in time quite a bit and in location this next room at the museum now we are going to 1739 on the ohio river all right 1739 Mm -hmm. ohio (laughs) <laughs> yeah remember when we used to fight wars over ohio wow those were the days you know <laughs> yeah. life was ohio just so mi- much so ohio much misses being the center of attention it probably does i mean yeah <laughs> they got they got some crazy stuff going on there still so mm-hmm. yes so um we have a recreation here of an encampment of french soldiers uh being led by charles lemont uh, the Baron nice. de Longueuil, Longueuil. I, I, he's he, he's an important guy. Okay. Um, so uh, the it, it, those of you familiar with American history will know about the French Indian Wars. Uh, that is uh, not when the French were uh, fighting uh, against the Native Americans, but rather uh, the French and British were fighting in. North America and different tribes allied with right. uh, different European powers. Yeah, um, it's just continuing the line of not very creative war names. Mm, yeah, I mean, well, it we, improved, as, you, as you're but... about to see, we we could have we could have called this the Mastodon War. Would have been cooler. It would. I'm, I'm curious to hear why. So, um, now I should mention that. What I'm referencing for this uh, portion is a book called Fossil Legends of the First Americans by Adrian Mayer. And I highly, highly, highly recommend this book. It is uh, very thoroughly researched um, and has a lot of uh, interesting aspects to the history of paleontology in the uh, United States that I was unaware of. Um, and it's going to be basically what the main ideas we're going to present today. Um, and that is to refute the claims of a very prominent American paleontologist, George Gaylord Simpson, 
um, who uh, worked at the AMNH uh, in the very early days of like really codifying paleontology. Hmm. Um, uh, Simpson lived 1902 to 1984. Um, and in looking back over history, he, he, he was sort of like the definitive historian of American paleontology. He wrote in the forties, uh, that native Americans, uh, all of their knowledge about fossils could be chalked up to quote casual finds without scientific sequel. Um, Uh, and this was, this was in response to a Canadian paleontologist, Edward M. Kindle, who in 1935 said, maybe we should ask me, you know, maybe, Hey, hey, yeah, you you thought, you thought about asking, thought about asking the Indians, eh? What's happening Uh, (laughs) about, about these dinosaurs. Did we just enter a letter, Kenny? <laughs> <laughs> Couple paleontologists came by the other day. <laughs> I love it. I, I want them to talk about dinosaurs in the next at, at some point on that show. It would be kind of magical. Oh my god! But uh, yeah, yes. you, you would think you would think that would be the more common common logical thing to to ask, but unfortunately, mm. no. no. Well, th- this no. So. Yeah. The it's difficult to there's a lot to unpack there with Simpson. Now, um, there's sort of conflicting reports on what exactly his views were. His biographer says Simpson was, you know, he you you can chalk some of it up to product of his time. Um, but Simpson probably was not an out and out racist so much as he was someone that was really trying to um, uh, solidify what exactly constituted paleontology. He wanted to demystify it. He really wanted to make it a serious science and not just sort of um, up to whatever, you know, Anyone who mm-hmm. found a weird looking rock said because there had been a lot of hucksters and charlatans, you know, all across America. You know, when he's writing this in the 40s, anyone who's found like just a rock with a hole in it will go around talking about how they found a dinosaur's butthole. You know, like the you could kind of just say anything back then. I mean, they they, they created an entire religion. So, yeah, I, I, you really could. Not everything is about the Mormons, Joe. I mean, it's a pretty good example of what happens when you need to, like, make something yes. up. Yeah. Just saying. Uh, right. And also, this is at a time where there's, you know, th- there's uh, there's frauds floating around, a lot of fake yeah, uh, it's examples. It's a lucrative business. There is, and but there's also a lot of frauds going around um, as people try to determine when humans arrived in North America. Um, now, they're not Mormons, they're not colonial era phrenologists, but they have sort of a legitimate question. And there's some distrust as to how to interpret uh, Native American sources and claims 
uh, to the land? Like, uh, do we take uh, how literally do we take this history? Um, So Simpson is definitely in this camp that we can't trust anyone who doesn't have industrialized society because they're they're not objective. And great. That, that, great. Yeah. So Ugh, so Jesus. not a lot of productivity there. His no. he has these very rigid standards um, or as he puts forth as kind of what should be the defining um what should define paleontology? What are we going to consider paleontology? Because he will he will totally admit people were finding these things, but how will we define science? Um, which even Simpson would say is a very recent uh, development for even Western civilization. That empirical evidence based science, especially as it relates to paleontology. In the 1940s, it's it's less than a hundred years old, you know. Like, yeah, I guess it's like true. Dar- Darwinian paleontology is in its infancy. Yeah, huh? That is, yeah, that's crazy. So, so he, yeah, he, he wants to, to separate. He wants to draw a line and say you're on the side right. of mythology or you're on the side of science. Um, ah, it's always the binaries, man. Every right. time, yep. Mm-hmm. That's a trap. It's a trap. Um, so the 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 George Gaylord Simpson trap, um, his outline basically says that in order for it to be considered science, you would have to um, not just stumble upon the fossils, but purposefully excavate them purposefully and intentionally return to a location um, to <clears throat> fur- to do further investigations uh, you would also need to make some sort of connection as to these being the remains of uh, long dead animals. Uh, and that excludes, you know, uh, and, and, and I think this was kind of the point. He was trying to exclude, um, you know, people that might say, uh, the the Greeks and Romans were paleontologists because you know the he, he was trying to say no people that find bones and say they're dragons are not paleontologists. Um, okay, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he's very interested in collective um, intentional uh, evaluation. Uh, that that people come together and con- and form some sort of consensus as to what exactly an animal is. It's not just someone coming home with a weird tooth or a horn, you know? Right. Yeah. And okay, we can. So what I kind of like is Mayer doesn't necessarily refute this, but rather spends the book. Um, employing Simpson's own really strict standards and showing that you could consider uh, the uh, traditions surrounding fossils within uh, the Native American cultures as precursors to, uh, to, to what we would think of as more empirical science. Interesting. Um, and this begins at the big bone lick. 
The what? The big bone lick. Bone lick. Yes. Huh. So <laughs> this brings us back to 1739. Uh, right. 200 years before. Gotcha. Uh, uh, Simpson uh, sort of makes this proclamation. So this is uh, before the Revolutionary War. This is the French-Indian Wars. Um, Charles Lemont is uh, allied with uh uh, multiple tribes in the area. Mayer, through her research, uh, it, and you know conversations with uh, different uh, elders and uh, anthropologists, believes that uh, in this particular case, Charles Lamont was working with uh, Abenakis uh, mm-hmm. of the region, um, and the Abenakis had were basically working kind of as hunters for him and his troops. Uh, which were both Frenchmen and uh, Native Americans, right? Um, they they would have had uh, uh, th- this. This would have been basically the the army, you know, which was fighting against other tribes, fighting against the British. The uh, uh, unfortunately, their names uh, were not recorded in history, but uh, pre- these uh, these uh, local hunters came back with venison uh in their canoes for the soldiers but they also had something else in their canoe and they claimed to have gotten it from uh a marsh from uh where uh they they normally collect salt from like a, a salt marsh um and in it is a femur almost as big as a person Whoa. what's more they have teeth giant teeth they're the size of like uh, a head. They have also uh, a pair of giant, long, curving tusks. All of this, and they present this to Charles Lamont, and he is just astounded by it. And he asks them about it, um, and they tell him that you know they got it from uh, this. Uh, what's referred to as the big bone lick, this marsh on the Ohio. Uh, and that this is, uh, a monster that once roamed the land, uh, and plays a part in their, uh, the Abenaki mythology, uh, and cosmology, but also is sort of part of this, um, this ancient primordial, uh, world that, once existed, but was wiped away to make room for humans and all contemporary animals. Uh, and, you know, sort of fascinated by this, uh, uh, Le Mont sends these uh, back to France. They get them to New Orleans. They go to Cabin de Rue, uh, then eventually the Jardin de Plants. Is, is that just plant garden in French? Jardin de Plants. Yeah. Yes. Plant okay. garden. <laughs> Jardin de Plants. Yes. Yeah. And then um, no one uh, less than George Cuvier, one of the founding fathers of paleontology, even huh. gets his hands on these teeth uh, and mentions them in writing in 1835, 100 years later. Took a while. Um, so fascinated by this story, uh, Mayer, the author of this book, mm-hmm. travels to France to see if can can we track these down. Meets uh, 
It goes to the uh, National Museum of Natural History in hey. Paris. Yeah. Meets Pascal Tassi. Uh, and they actually not only uncover the teeth, but also the femur Whoa. that was sent. Um, and it's been mislabeled. It's labeled as a gift from Thomas Jefferson. But as they look at the sketches, they realize this femur that is part of the permanent paleontology installation that is labeled as being from North America. Th- there are two femurs. One is from Alexander Humboldt, von mm-hmm. Humboldt. The other is labeled as being from Jefferson. But when oh. they look at the records, they realize this is the femur that the Abenakis uh, brought out of the, uh, the big bone lick. Whoa. Uh, yes. So this was rediscovered in 2001. Oh, my God. Um, okay. Yeah. It's very interesting. But these were uh, really important finds to sort of spreading the word about uh, the, the extinct animals of North America. Um, and it's difficult to say that there's a pretty good paper trail for a lot of the, uh, the these remnants of this animal. Um, the only thing that was lost were the tusks and uh, Pascal Tassi, the paleontologist uh, uh, from the National Museum. Uh, they're, they're pretty sure that the tusks were looted during the French Revolution. Ah, um, that'll do it. But we have the teeth and we have the femurs. Um, now, Mayer also speaks with a uh, Abenaki uh, historian, Gerard, uh, apologies, Tunsnaqua. Sanaqua? I, I think Sanaqua. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure how, how you do the T before the S. Sanaqua, maybe? Sanaqua, yeah. Okay. Uh, so she, uh, she speaks with Gerard... She speaks with Gerard Sanaqua, uh, an Abenaki elder uh, and historian, um, and uh, he talk. He he is able to speculate a little bit about what was going on here. Um, there were these stories of these giant ancestral creatures, um, and also the uh, the members of this tribe would have been familiar with ivory. Um, from different animals with tusks. Uh, They obviously would have never seen an elephant before, Um, but they understood the ivory as valuable. It was uh, used Mm -hmm. in uh, medicines and rituals and uh, different traditions. Um, A lot of times they were identified as uh, giant elk, elk, and and the the horns were said to be magical. That they were there were these creatures with these magical horns and tusks. Um, in some cases, uh, claimed to be ancestors of the bison, depending on where you lived in the Americas. Gotcha. Um, so what's interesting about this is if we look at the types of fossils that would be found in these marshes in the eastern uh, part of what is now the United States, um, there would have been a lot of um, Pleistocene era remains. That is things from the last ice age. Uh, Uh. So 
the, the, the kind of fascinating aspect to a lot of these, um, these discoveries is one, it shows that, and, and this is, um, this is just one particular instance out of literally hundreds that are in this book where already we're fulfilling part of Simpson's requisites, uh, because very consistently all across the continent, the indigenous inhabitants know where to go to find these fossils. There's deliberate excavation going on and there is to fulfill another requirement. There is extrapolation as to what these are and a recognition of extinction. Um, now it's difficult to always parse out what, fossils would have um, equated to which monster. And this would go against Simpson's requirement. However, uh, the Abenaki and other tribes identified giant prehistoric bison, which did used to inhabit North America before um, modern bison. These would have been much larger with much larger horns. And Interestingly, they identify them as the ancestors of modern bison, which is a concept that if we're talking about um, something in the 1700s, this technically, this as a concept predates Darwinian evolution. The idea that um, a pre-existing species begot another species. Uh, Now, It is difficult because a lot of these traditions were orally passed down. Right. And also, you know, it it was just operating in a a different mode of existence, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, almost. I shouldn't say that. It was it was uh, fulfilling a different societal role. I don't want to. And I think Mayer does a pretty good job for most of the book. Um, in not overstating the significance of these discoveries, but I think she makes a very good point that there are there are valuable observations going on here. We don't have to we don't have to like say that they understood evolution by natural selection as we know it now. But I mean, comparatively, Europeans are just starting to come around to the idea of extinction. Um, Cuvier even is still, uh, a proponent of catastrophism. You know, the idea that all the animals existed at one point and then, uh, different catastrophes happen that whittle down, uh, populations Mm. to more and more remote places. Right. Um, and this is somewhat compatible with what the Native Americans are saying um Mm -hmm. that there are these ancient animals that uh were pushed out of the area um so we can say that they're one they're discovering the fossils but also in some cultures there may even be 
oral traditions that would have preserved some living memory of the last of these uh, Pleistocene Ice Age giants. Wow. So that there was some understanding of a continuity. Now, this is a very big claim, um, but uh, it's worth entertaining. And there were so many cultures that had so much history that was just lost. We really may never know to what extent they understood uh, these concepts. Um, different tribes also had this idea of little people, sort of uh, different uh, uh, primordial forms of humans. Sometimes they're uh, malevolent, sometimes benevolent, that would, uh, they, they fit into the cosmology of different tribes. Um, what's interesting is, there are rocks in on the east coast of the United States uh, that have what appear to be dinosaur footprints in them. However, those rocks are the wrong age to have dinosaurs in them. So huh. what has been determined is they're actually it's actually rock art of Native Americans finding dinosaur footprints interpreting them as the footprints of these little people and carving them as, uh, as rock art. Oh yeah. That's very interesting. Huh? I, so yeah, that's literally a preservation of information then in that case. It is. It is. Yes. Very. Um, and there's, uh, Then in, uh, if we go even earlier, and I find this so fascinating. So Thomas Jefferson, we've talked about before, among other things, fossil collector. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But he was very into the idea that uh, he, he did not want to attribute these fossils that they were finding, um, to, giants as a lot of people were um uh both uh native americans and uh european americans alike um and there was this um there was this story that jefferson would have been aware of it was fairly publicized in 1725 uh mark uh was uh it was a um it was a naturalist he uh went down south uh, and he was doing uh, he was doing sort of a survey of the carolinas and in on a plantation called stono the 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 plantation workers the slaves had uncovered uh what they identified as an elephant skeleton huh and this shook everything up and people were like it, people in the new world were like what are you talking about but what we have to remember is there are now people in particular on the stono plantation they were from angola and congo mm. they knew what elephants were they were probably right. some of the first people on the continent that had personal relationships <laughs> Right. Knowing what an elephant was and from the teeth identified it as an elephant. 
One thing that I, I forgot to mention earlier, you know, do, do you know the difference between a mastodon and a mammoth? I, I can't say I do. Mm. Yeah. Well, she always ask. Um, <laughs> so mastodons, while superficially, if you have a complete skeleton, they do look fairly elephantine. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not as closely related to elephants as mammoths. And part of this is their teeth. Um, mastodons have like kind of weirdly human shaped teeth, like like a oh. very high, very high cusps, you know, like kind of pointed. So it, it really led lent itself to the idea of these being giants. What uh, Cat, Catesby and Jefferson were really interested in um, was that the uh, the black slaves on this plantation noted that this skeleton had flat teeth like an elephant. Uh, And this really solidified that there were elephantine animals living on the continent at one point, that these were not the the remnants of giants. Uh, Mammoths have very flat teeth by comparison to mastodon and very distinct teeth. Um, Interesting. So this further the uh the idea that there there was this whole class of fauna that was um that had once been uh on the continent wow um and as you go further on into the 1800s uh charles othniel marsh who we've talked about before you know one of the uh the bone wars guys um and I didn't know this, and I thought it was so fascinating, and I never thought about it before. Marsh uh, found a lot of fossils and credited a lot of uh, Native American tribes with helping paleontologists find fossil deposits, knowing huh. where they were. And because of this, and because of how um, the 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 tribal elders would talk about thunderbirds. This is why Marsh named Brontosaurus thunder lizard. Oh, and Brontotherium, the uh, relative of rhinoceros that he discovered. Like I had no idea that that's why he called it thunder lizard. Hmm. This clarifies a lot from when we talked about that too. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so actually, uh, now this is where things, knowing what I know, I mean, Mayer, I, I'm going to say, is is a real academic and has, this is this has kind of been uh, her, uh, her specialty, has been looking at lost technologies and, and, uh, and things like that in, in cultures all over the world. Um, Not in a uh, Graham Hancock kind of way, but a a much more realistic one. Mm -hmm. Now, this this part, I got a little apprehensive because I am of a I I I'm coming from a background where I am told to be very skeptical of people that talk about dinosaurs being the inspiration for dragons because it's usually not true and it's kind of, it it usually just is like wishful thinking. Um, and, uh, mayor, uh, mayor definitely puts forth some evidence to suggest that 
as opposed to in Europe, where the, the, this is almost certainly not true, there is some evidence that you could suggest to say that um, some of the Thunderbird and uh, giant lizard legends of the Midwest and Western tribes could have come from the discovery of dinosaur fossils. Um, and some tribes like the Uchi uh, in Oklahoma, originally from Tennessee, uh, before being moved there, um, identify certain specific dinosaur species as the giant lizards of their, uh, of their history. Um, the Cheyenne have horned creatures uh, that are uh, that do line up with certain prehistoric rhinos that can be discovered in different geographies that they have been moved to. the The main thing that Mayer says is you have to look at how the depiction of the animals changes as the tribes move around. And that suggests that they are actually being shaped by the fossils that they are finding, that the horns and tusks and and the configuration of those features reflects how tribes from the east, who are usually encountering Ice Age era fossils, as they are pushed west into the part of the country that has Mesozoic aged fossils, Mosasaurs, uh, allosaurs, you know, triceratopses. Right, right. They start to get more reptilian influence in their creatures. And Interesting. It's a big, it's a bit of a leap, but it is, it is noteworthy, yeah, especially, I mean, especially in that they, uh, a lot of tribes do connect these things. Part of why I've always been skeptical is, Part of the reason why I think, and, and I, 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 this isn't just my opinion, but it, it does form part of my opinion. Part of the reason why dinosaurs come around in the Industrial Revolution is because dinosaurs are buried in rock. And it really took until the Industrial Revolution for us to have the proper, to, to have just the, the methods of excavation at a, at scale that are required uh, for these. However, right. I've also been to Valley of the Last Dinosaurs where there's stuff sticking out of the ground. That's what I was going to say to counter where it's <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, yeah, like I imagine in some of these places, it's just there. And it's a lot of open yeah. country. Like in a sense, oh, like a lot of this, a lot of the fossils could, I mean, I, I'm no paleontologist. I don't know. I've never even been to a field where you could do excavation. But I imagine if you're not necessarily looking for this there and you're living off the land, it's your home. You're all over. It's like bound to happen. Right. And at least once and probably multiple, multiple times. So I don't know if you would need like, cause it sounds like that with, with the study of paleontology, with the actual intention of we need to excavate, then machinery Mm -hmm. made sense. And then it, it lines up like you're saying really well, but I think yeah, it's interesting what she's what Mayor's proposing, and I can see it making sense he, way more here than, of course, like in Europe or in other other countries as well, where that mythology is a lot different and a lot more. Um, it, it's built off of other other things, you know, other cultural yeah. artifacts. Whereas 
in the in the Americas, you know, especially with the oral tradition being so important to so many indigenous cultures, I, that, that's like a, I don't know. It's a. Pr- I mean, we, we we won't necessarily never know, but I do think that that's a pretty solid case. Or it's it, there's some yeah. there's some weight to it that I feel should be a bit should be considered, especially to that a lot of paleontology and the science is western based it's very Mm -hmm. heavily influenced by a western idea of science um Mm -hmm. which it's good to have foundations it's important to establish rules and and guidelines for one's practice and anything yeah but it's also important to allow room for growth and perspective which often Mm -hmm. gets left out and i think in you know, moving forward and especially understanding this and bringing this perspective, the indigenous perspective, into mm-hmm. the fold, allowing a little bit of, maybe a lot of bit of some room to expand on these things, re-research, re-look at it with a different lens, will be important mm-hmm. for bringing that up because it's really, really interesting. And honestly, it does shed a lot of light mm-hmm. and and on, on the annihilation of language, especially due to yes. English and French, but mostly English in this case of what happened under imperialism right and yes. that's all of this knowledge is completely removed and it's not about that people should be writing things down or not which often gets sort of thrown around as the as the answer to that but it's more of the responsibility of people and how we preserve knowledge and respect others and others um Right. Other pers- yeah, other cultures and perspectives in that in that way. So this is incredibly yes. fascinating. I have to say, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in this a lot. A lot. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought that up too because, um, you know, bringing it forward to today, because you know, Mayer interviews a lot of people from a lot of different regions. You mm-hmm. know, she she even is able to uh, draw in you know, as the Sioux are pushed around, right. You know, the, the West, like the, even their descriptions of Thunderbirds change depending on, you know, where, where they're settled. Um, there's, there's, there's a tricky relationship that paleontologists always have with any landholders out West um, and I've talked a little bit about this before, and uh, Hillary, friend of the show, Hillary McLean, has talked about this before. Um, but it it is a it is a pure science in a lot of ways. But there are also people trying to you know make a buck off of it. Yep. And there's plenty of for profit paleontologists. There's also a recognition of the monetary value of a lot of these fossils, depending on what they are. Um, And so on the one hand, there's there's a lot of relationships that have, you know, been forged uh, with different uh, tribal authorities if um, if there are fossils found on uh, on on Indian reservations or or on any tribal lands um, there's a lot of emphasis that paleontologists have to put on the fact that they are not archaeologists you know not only to their families um, <laughs> so what do you do you dig things out of the ground is like are you like Indiana Jones or something <laughs> doesn't matter how many times I tell people I wanted to be a paleontologist. They're like, oh, I love archaeology. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> and you're like, well, it's yeah. not the same. 
Yeah. So, you know, they have to have that conversation because a lot of tribes have been done dirty by anthropologists and archaeologists, you know, raiding sites. Yeah. Um, And even now, you know, there's a lot of archaeologists that want to do good work, archaeologists that work within tribes that, that want to, you know, learn about the history while you know, leaving things as intact as possible. And a lot of, um, there's even been a suggestion that these bones could be studied, but then left in situ. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's difficult because dinosaur bones, once exposed to the elements, pretty quickly erode away. Um, But a lot, and this depends on where you go, because every, you know, Believe it or not, you know, people have, uh, 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 any demographic, people, different individuals will have differing opinions. What? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Are you serious? Um, So some locales uh, are more open to, uh, you know, uh, paleontologists digging on their land as long as, you know, there's uh, a, uh, as there's a respect of ownership. Um, other places, you know, the, the tradition is in a lot of these places, the tradition is, is that anything in the ground is an ancestor and should be left alone. Right. Um, yeah. So then you're not, you, you, you can't take anything. Um, and that is, that is something to, to, uh, try and, uh, understand, you know, get that perspective. Um, in, and then some places, you know, just kind of get done dirty. There's one story yeah. in the book about um, a Dilophosaurus that is uh, discovered. Um, and, you know, the tribe is promised uh, a cast of the skeleton. You know, th- it takes years for them to get it. And then when they do get it, they're they're not really given the proper literature on like, you know, like uh, what it is. So it like just ends up in a gift shop, you know, and like the the, uh, the 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 like local like tourist information station thing, right? And yeah. th- th- this is something that SVP, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, in, in 1995, they sort of had like a memo on outreach, and a big part of it was acknowledging that a lot of these places have kind of limited resources and that some something more has to be done. Yeah. No, I, I, absolutely that makes sense and and mm-hmm. you you can also understand because of those relationships and how, how how many instances there's been a big um uh disrespect done on tribes why you they wouldn't be interested in sharing or in, right. in letting other people come on to their land to, to excavate things. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of justification in the name of science, but mm-hmm. I often wonder how much of that's just ego to tell you the mm-hmm. truth, because at the end of the, I, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like if that, I don't know if, that mm. if that's out of bounds or anything, but it, it's one of those, those questions I have, especially when it comes to these type of, of studies, whether it be archeology span or paleontology or anthropology, yeah, I guess anthropology a little bit too. Where the respect? How how do you, how do you find that line between the respect of the culture and of the humanity and mm-hmm. the land, and also the research and the history? And it's yeah. exciting to see that there's been more 
relationships built and established and there's collaborations occurring, especially in yeah. like some anthropology and archaeology and, and paleontology as well, as we know. But that's definitely a long way to go for sure to, right. heal, to heal relationships and also to, yeah. to, to, um, to, to establish a new way or maybe not a new mm-hmm. way, but I guess to develop a way to continue with the practice while understanding this complex history that's done a yeah. lot, a lot of, a lot of bad things. I mean, old mm-hmm. anthropology is just insane. I mean, it's literally colonization, <laughs> but like a research project. It's awful. It was awful. Like just truly dehumanizing on so many mm-hmm. levels. And it, it often, it, that's what always throws me. And people are like, I'm an anthropology major. I'm like, what do you do? What do you do now? And you know, you haven't explained that it makes sense, but right. it's a little, it's still a yeah. little weird. Like eth- right. ethnographics a little bit more, it's a little better ethnology, mm. but it's still, it's, it's all of these things mm-hmm. that are important. Obviously it, it, we, we want to know about who we are as people, our cultures, what, existed on the earth beforehand how it's shaped mm-hmm, cultures mm-hmm. may or may not uh be directly or not but finding those routes i think to do it respectfully and and within um that collaboration i feel i feel is the right way to go i mean just as an outsider mm-hmm. perspective a little bit but more on the historical side but again like just with texts like these and and what you're saying mm-hmm. and, and all of this coming through it's very very interesting and i think again it shifts that perspective a little bit of exactly, not focusing yeah. it on the the white people who figured out the dinosaur bones it's like actually hold on let's go a little further back and explore this um this bit of history here right. instead and i think we don't have to because i i i was very nervous in starting this book like if this was going to be actually what i wanted to learn about and i was i was thrilled yeah. that it, it was that it I'm was glad. a real piece of of research i am you know always <clears throat> very cautious about you know people that really want to overstate uh mm-hmm. the, the the wisdom <clears throat> of any orthodox culture that's um, fair yeah and you know i i think we all have some uh we 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 all are somewhat susceptible sometimes to something vaguely wise being said by a member of a disenfranchised group mm-hmm. uh and and i i understand that and and our sympathies i i i think this is important and this book did just get released as as a paperback. It's from 2005 originally, but the mm. paperback uh, has has just been issued, and it's great. Um, but this, I think, just adds to the continuity of the story of paleontology, and especially yeah. on, on this continent. Um, you know, it's it, you you finally get to. Uh, you know, there, there's there's more names that you get to add to the mm-hmm. existing story. I don't think it, um, I don't think it rewrites as much as it does. Just just add to how much richer a story this is. How much more right. of a a collaborative story this is. That you know, um, yeah, it adds that, to the perspective. Uh, the, yeah, and you know, maybe eventually we'll be able to culturally have a real conversation and 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 be able to broach those those uh concepts of when 
when does a population arrive in a place? Uh, you know, how does that factor into how we how we think of them of of their uh, of 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 origins? You know, right? Um, that you know that that's a conversation that you want to have with an understanding that there is historically been a, a, a non-level uh, playing field here. Uh, and, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to come in and say, well, you didn't just pop up out of the ground here, but, you know, we're also not saying that it was right to displace you. Um, you know, that's, mm-hmm. th- that's, that's a conversation that takes a lot of uh, trust and a, a lot of, a lot of growing. Um, I, I'll end with one little bit of positivity. I mean, this is news from 20 years ago, but I, I hadn't heard about it. Um, of all people, in 2003, fulfilling his promise, Jack Horner uh, returned a baby T-Rex skeleton that had been found, uh, that, it, that was prepped uh, by him and his, uh, his uh, lab uh, lab people uh at the museum of the rockies in bozeman and returned it to the blackfeet uh for display Mm. in their museum wow so even 20 years ago okay you know progress had started to turn the ship around and you know we're not things haven't been solved in the last two decades um you know jack horner still horny um but you know Still, but but we're all horny for knowledge and and yeah. horny to for for growth, right? Absolutely. I mean, what a way to put it. But that is, ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have fun here. But no, that's <laughs> <laughs> that is positive news. Absolutely. So, and definitely mm-hmm. hope to hear to hear more of that too. But wow, thank you so much, Sam, for all of this research. I mean, oh, this is really no in- incredible what you've put together and absolutely insightful. So. Just wanted to thank you again. And uh, yeah, I'm absolutely looking forward to reading these books at some point, hopefully soon. They seem very interesting. This is like younger mm-hmm. me's, I think, uh, dream reads in that case. I was very fascinated with Ice Age time periods. I don't know why, but uh, I think that's why I like Skyrim so much. No relation, but it's just tundra and mammoths, and that's all you need, really. But no, I'm I'm very excited to check these out. Can can you list the names again one more time for for everybody here? Yes. So, um, for research on Beringia, um, I used Otherlands by Thomas Holiday, and for the bulk of this research, I used Fossil Legends of the First Americans by Adrian Mayer. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, if anybody's interested out there, you need some, you need some material for your papers, and check them out. Seems mm-hmm. to be really good. I oh, for yes. sure am. And they're they're one of those books where you think like, oh man, there's still so much of this book left, and then you turn <laughs> the page and realize that like the back quarter of all the pages is uh, sources. That's always so a like, good sign. Yeah. Yeah. A lot yeah, of no, these are. They, I I was so afraid I was getting another. Um, not that I don't enjoy that book, but um, Florida's Unexpected Wildlife, where it's just, right. you know, <laughs> it's, skunk, it's skunk ape sightings. You yeah. Know? So this guy at some point said he saw something a little uh, Bigfoot-like. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mark it down. Yes, yes. But yes, uh, those those are definitely uh, 
At the very least, those are my recommendations. Um, yeah, there you go. I, I, I don't know spent. if we're just jumping into recommendations. We can. We absolutely can. There's no rules anymore. Yeah. Well, thank you. And yeah, no, this was a ton of fun to talk about. If we're getting into uh, uh, other recommendations, uh, in terms of things that uh, Zan was not aware of, but, you know, it, it, I'm looking back on in retrospect, um... I'm going to say for my uncanny recommendation, I'm going to I have two things. Uh, for some reason, I've been on a 90s music kick. OK. Um, And I have discovered that I actually do like some of Jeff Buckley's music. Wow. Uh, not just Hallelujah uh, or his cover of Hallelujah, but um, I would recommend uh, checking out sketches for my sweetheart, the drunk. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And you really do understand that Buckley was like actually a very good guitar player. Mm. Uh, And uh, I I appreciate that. Um, And, and, you know, he was, it was a good songwriter and there's a lot of stuff in there. I I think I'd written him off as like a a bit, a bit generic, but listening to it, giving it a proper listen, I, I actually do have uh, a bit more appreciation for his music. Obviously I'm a fan of his father, both of them gone too soon, but you know, Mm. the other thing was, um, I listened to that new, uh, super deluxe version of Nevermind that, uh, came out not too long ago. Um, and in particular, the Devonshire mix, of Nevermind, that is how that album should be listened to. I, I'm oh. not the first person to say that, but like, <laughs> okay, you've heard Smells Like Teen Spirit a million times. Listen to this mix. Maybe this, I'll, this listen, is- I'll listen to it. Maybe they'll make me like Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> so they're fine. Nirvana is a very important band. I like yes. them. I don't um, listen to but, them very often, it, though. Yeah, but that is that is that is worth a listen, especially okay. from an album that is, you know, considered too pop by many uh, Nirvana fans. Um, but those are those are going to be my uh, recommendations. Two books, two albums. Word. Nice. All right. Um, I guess on my end, one of the books I wanted to recommend that I started reading is uh, Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zwerner or a.k.a. Japanese Breakfast. And it's so good. It's so good. Mm. It's so heartbreaking and human and authentic. And it's it's absolutely one of the best books I've ever read. I mean, I'm not one for a memoir. I haven't read that many of them, to be honest. So I was a little I was I was always very curious just hearing I mean, there's so many reviews about this book and it's it's very critically acclaimed, but it it just it's just so well written and authentic, as I've said, but also really depicts um, actually a lot of what we're talking about here of, of the, the removal of language, especially in the immigrant story of when, you know, you have a parent that comes from a different country, speaks a different language, has a completely different life. And then you're put into the American setting and then how you are raised in that way. And and she talks a lot about her childhood, but then also her mother's battle um, and, and passing of cancer. And it's just very, emotional but I, I just highly recommend it if you're in the right place and mindset to read it of course because there's some sensitive material in there absolutely would recommend um mm. so that's at the the top of my list for sure wonderful yeah i would say that's about that's that's it at the moment for like my top top recommendations for sure mm-hmm. mostly just text base right on right on um 
Well, no, those, I mean, that sounds like a, a wonderful read. Yeah, um, highly recommend. I'll, I'll probably have to pick that up at some point. You'll, it's very um, good, for sure. Okay, nice, nice. Um, all right, all right. Uh, I guess uh, that brings us to, uh, well, what's going on outside the museum? Uh, where what are projects and uh, other other things that happen beyond these walls? Uh, Joe, what are you doing? Uh, well, I have some hopefully music coming out soon. We're in the mixing, mastering, and album title deciding uh, questions <laughs> right now. It's always kind of a, a whole thing, but uh, so I have that on the horizon. But also, I'm a part of this show that's upcoming in july from july 1st to the 28th entitled teleportal munich calling and that's going to be at donner wieblitz uh fenister gallery in munich germany so if you're in munich germany in july feel free to go check that out it's in this like little hallway on a side street um but it's a collaborative project with the my uh collective and i or my the collective i'm a part of teleportal uh, and I'm very excited to be a part of that. And yeah, it should be fun. So that's like the most immediate news I have. Uh, but nice. how about you, get, Sam? Get fenestrated. Nice. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Munich's kind of a crazy city. It's very interesting yeah. and not quite what you expect. So it's been fun to be able to like make something for there. Nice. Yeah. But how, um, how about you? Well, on my end, um, on the on May twentieth, uh, I will be at the closing reception for the Director's Choice Show at Viridian Artists in Chelsea, New York. Um, so, uh, I believe myself and the other artists there will be uh, speaking uh, short for a little bit. So, uh, if you are in the area and uh, want to come and see that. I do believe my piece, uh, Paper Airplane, uh, that was in that show has sold. So nice. thank you so much. Uh, but uh, yeah, that'll that'll be the last time it's on view before it's in private hands. Wow. So, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have hopefully some music stuff coming out. Mm. I know I've been teasing that. I feel like for maybe three years, um, <laughs> but it's happening. It's real. Uh, and, uh, then in September on, oh, I finally have a date, September 2nd, uh, I'm going to have work up at the Folk House Collective in Kingston, New York. So be on the lookout for that. Other than that, um, oh, and of course my, uh, workshop at the John C. Campbell Folk School in Mm -hmm. Brasstown, North Carolina, first week of August, uh, come and learn how to paint um yeah we'll have a blast yeah it sounds like a good time absolutely mm-hmm. yeah cool. if you would like to find the museum after hours we are at uncanny county museum on instagram you can email us questions or comments uh if you uh have any uh any additional knowledge on the topic that we have covered today if you have uh especially if you are uh anyone that has a uh uh a traditional mythology associated with fossils we would love to hear from mm-hmm. you you can Absolutely. email us uh uncanny county museum at gmail.com uh we would uh love to follow up uh on this and are always open into uh hearing uh more because again you know it's a almost 20 year old book i'm sure there's been more research Absolutely, done in the meantime. yeah <laughs> yeah cool. yeah um 
Yes, and if you would like to find me after hours, I'm at Xanosaurus on Instagram. And I'm at Josemino Art on Instagram. And from the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters. And I've been Joe Semino. Bye. Bye. See you at the bone lick. Bye.